morning, everybody. This is Robin Ayub from the Localization Fireside Chat, and welcome to another episode of our podcast. Today, I'm honored to be joined by a uh, freelance journalist and content, ma content marketer in Toronto, David Silverberg. Thank you for joining me, and welcome to the conversation. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Robin. It's really exciting to be part of your uh, fantastic podcast. Excellent. And um, we always talk on the on the podcast on the channel here about the language aspect of the content and. For those who deal with content and they normally deal with it in a unilingual format, meaning I'm writing a content piece of content, whatever that content is, uh, at some point post, you know, pre-publishing, somebody wakes up and says, oh, we need to translate it. We need to put it into another languages, uh, other languages. So the language industry comes to play and support and help this content transform to another language. But we really rarely talk about uh, the content at the inception level. And that's why I'm so interested in talking to you, uh, David, today and, and having this conversation one-on-one -on -one and uh, fellow uh, Torontonian. I am located in the GTA area. I'm in Mississauga. You're in Toronto. So there you go. We could have yeah, done that at a Starbucks. We, we have a great media landscape here in Toronto. It's evolving. It's changing. But yeah, there's a, a lot to talk about with journalism, even within Toronto. So absolutely. And the first question that everybody gets on this on this podcast is tell me your story. Um, I'm sure you have a fascinating story being a journalist. Uh, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. So I'm a graduate of uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson in, in Toronto. I've always been a writer, both creatively and with uh, nonfiction. I was part of my high school um, newspaper, as well as a, a poet and a short story writer uh, in my youth. And soon after graduating from journalism school, I got involved with a news network called Digital Journal that began as a magazine that was aiming to be like the Wired for Canada technology, uh, covering both software, hardware, and, and media trends and technology trends. We transitioned to a uh, online news only outlet that leveraged the power of citizen journalism, because at the time of the early 2000s, uh, citizen journalists were rapidly becoming um, more prominent and respected. Uh, they didn't have to have journalism school training. So we worked with uh, citizen journalists around the world to post their own stories on our news network that had a proprietary kind of upload system and money pot sharing system. And that involved around um, journalists from 120 different countries. So being an editor of a small team of um, you know producers of news content that manage a large team of citizen journalists was was heady, was overwhelming, but intoxicating. I really loved working in the digital era. I think long before a lot of major news companies um, brought their own kind of ecosystems online. Uh, I was always a freelancer though throughout that. My my manager at Digital Journal really gave me a lot of flexibility to write for different outlets such as Vice, Toronto Star, Globe and Mail. Um, uh, Canadian business, um, um, a little bit for blogto.com, a local blog here in Toronto. And so I've always had that freelance bug in me. So around 2016, I decided to go full-time freelance, um, wanted to kind of test the waters and also give myself more flexibility and time to write uh, my creative projects, which became solo theater projects. But as a journalist, I've been writing for uh, the Washington Post, BBC News, Fast Company, MIT Technology Review, Popular Mechanics, um, again, for Toronto Star and Globe and Mail quite extensively as well. And my, my beats really run the gamut, but I've found that my beats are generally technology and within that AI, um, robotics, 
Uh, business management is something that I've written quite a lot about business leaderships and and leaders of various companies, whether that's 23andMe or Headspace, or I've interviewed folks like Richard Branson before. And I've also loved writing about the arts. So the arts is always something close to my heart, theater, film, um, music, and, and, and TV recaps. And I've written um, for various publications on both business, tech, and the arts. And I'm also a writing coach. So something newish uh, to my uh, um, toolkit. Uh, come the pandemic, I realized there were a lot of freelance journalists who needed a leg up in both fine-tuning their writing skills and, um, you know, elevating their own businesses as solopreneurs. So I decided, you know what, there's a lot of writing coaches for poets and short story writers and novelists, but not a lot for freelance journalists or journalists in general, unless they take extensive kind of um, courses at places like BAM. So I decided to do one-on-one over Zoom and that uh, and my Become a Better Writer program has been really fulfilling for me and hopefully for the writers that I've worked with who range from folks in uh, Toronto and Ontario to uh, uh, really budding journalists in uh, Nigeria that I was really uh, overwhelmed to uh, overwhelmingly excited to work with. Wow, what an extensive story, man! I um, I envy you. You've uh, interviewed quite, uh, you know, Bronson, uh, Sir Bronson. That's pretty. That's pretty big. Um, oh yeah, he, he was a great guy to talk to, and I think I talked to him in the early two thousand when I was at Digital Journal before uh, a lot of things were taking off for Virgin. Yeah, <laughs> excellent. Now, so yeah, I mean, freelancers uh, being a freelancer journalist gives you a uh, lots of freedom uh, to choose the topic. The medium and and the and the company you want to work with or the organization you want to check, you know, there's a lot of freedom associated with that. What about some of the downside of being a freelance journalist? Have you experienced any of it? There's peaks and valleys. Um, with income, you can have a great month in September, and then maybe not a lot of hits on your pitches uh, come come November. So it really can be feast or famine at times. Uh, which is why I try to you know keep myself busy with marketing and ensuring that my website is up to date during those kind of low um, income months. So there's the struggle of hustling. Mm-hmm. I actually love the hustle. I love coming up with ideas and pitching editors, but a lot of folks in my um, sector don't like the hustle and really find joy only in the craft of writing and interviewing mm-hmm. and news gathering. But that that can be. Um, a challenge for a lot of folks. And the other challenge too um, is that there's a lot of media contraction right now. Um, Many outlets are shutting down, unfortunately. Um, I've faced that myself when I was working for a client for around eight months or so, lucrative client, but they decided just to abandon ship and shut down the whole publication due to lack of funds funneling towards their advertising side of the business. Uh, And what that creates though is more competition for myself because Less uh, media outlets right. around equals more freelance journalists looking for income unless they go to the dark side of PR and marketing. Uh, but that means I have to make sure that my ideas are really mm-hmm. strong, that I have a compelling pitch to editors, and that I'm pitching the right kind of outlet as well for my ideas. So those are the two main kind of uh, drawbacks. That so I you, bring a very, you bring a very uh, topic, a topic of the hour, I guess. We're seeing a lot of layoffs in media companies now. And... Um, it can't be because the need is not there. I'm, not, I'm, I'm assuming the consumer of content, the, con, the consumption of content, still on the same rate, maybe increasing. Yeah. Uh, but the um, those who are producing it, there seem if they work for a regular company, if they work for an established institution, they seem to finding themselves without a job. Does that yeah. it, that sounds that sounds counterproductive to be to be honest with you? If you got a consumer who's consuming content, 
you're producing the content on this side, and then you're, you're terminating your relationship with the, with the production of the content with the journalist, to be honest with you. Well, the, the really age-old issue has been that, you know, the print dollars aren't translating into the digital dimes in the way that um, publishers want, meaning that there was a real great boom of advertising revenue that came with classifieds, came with print ads back, you know, in, in the obviously 80s and 90s when print didn't have to worry about mm -hmm. revenue and, and revenue mainly came from advertising as opposed to subscriptions. But when everything kind of ported online and Google and Facebook kind of gobbled up all that kind of classified money and advertising money as well, Craigslist as well was a factor for a lot of uh, publishers in the early 2000s, late 90s, then those digital dimes didn't translate into enough revenue to keep the boat afloat. And sure, there are paywalls and success stories like New York Times, and we've seen a few success stories in, in Canada as well with Toronto Star, but it just hasn't been a widespread phenomenon where the paywall and subscriber revenue has been um, enough money to make up for the loss of advertising. And, you know, in the 2022, 2023, we saw a lot of layoffs in the tech sector, whether that was folks from like Google or Amazon uh, being laid off. And that trickles down into revenue that could have been ported into news outlets, meaning Google might be advertising less. Amazon might be advertising less due to their own kind of um, contractions. So that that trickle down effect will, um, you know, make an impact for a lot of news outlets. And also we've seen consolidation too. So as more mergers and acquisition happen within the media business, there's bound to be layoffs. It's not going to be the same kind of headcounts we're going to see uh, when those uh, M&As didn't happen. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's just a sad state of affairs for, for media. But I am encouraged by seeing a lot more news outlets um, that are solely existing online thriving, whether that's the local in, in Canada or we're, we're seeing um, The Intercept in, in, well, The Intercept had some uh, unfortunate news in the U.S., but they were really thriving a few years ago and, and making a lot of headway. And so when, you know, online-only outlets like Engadget and Gizmodo um, start to attract freelance um, interest and also reader interest, that gives me hope that there can be an outlet for freelance journalism um, in the future. Yeah. One of the, uh, David, one of the things that I probably I should, you know, I can't escape from asking is that because you're a writer, because you're a content creator, mm -hmm. um, have you ever dealt with your content being translated to another language? And if so, how was that experience? Yeah, it, it usually is translated kind of after the fact without my kind of involvement at all. So let's say I write for like BBC and, and Torstar and, and those kind of major media conglomerates, um, they have partnerships with various other um, local news outlets that automatically will translate usually their articles into Spanish or, or into French or into German. And so I'm, I'm usually like not part of or privy to those discussions or to those processes. And, and that's fine by me. And, and when I can, you know, identify that my content has been translated to other languages and reaching other audiences, that really gives me uh, a great sense of satisfaction knowing um, that more readers right. are enjoying my content, especially because I try to write content that I think is doing, um, you know, good in the world. I'm, I'm profiling businesses and, and perhaps, you know, climate-friendly solutions, for example, that I think uh, should be read by more folks. So that, that, that is totally um, fine for me. It just, it doesn't happen on a widespread 
um, wave though. Only a few outlets that I work with do uh, auto translation with their partners. So let's move to the topic of the hour. I, you know, the world inundated, and you mentioned few uh, um, uh, media outlet that you work with, and I'm 100% certain, including Popular Mechanic, uh, they're all over the idea of AI and how AI is going to impact the world. Um, and I think uh, it's impacting everybody, every profession, every job, knowledge-based industry, whatever industry you're in, uh, AI is going to be part of that, at least. Yeah some part of, you know, at a slow process right now where you're going, AI is coming, getting foothold in certain professions, maybe faster in other professions. Uh, but that velocity is increasing over time in terms of adoption, in terms of deploying and taking advantage of the, of the tech. How's that impacting the, um, your, your profession on a, on a journalistic type of, type of uh, profession? So how's that impacting? Well, I think, first of all, I don't feel like AI is taking my job away. I think what AI is doing is strengthening newsrooms with data ga gathering and certain misclassification kind of analysis that I think is going to make newsrooms um, just, just stronger and more efficient. Where I think it can be a, an, an issue is that if I wanted to become a full-time reporter at a, you know, let's say I kind of got sick of the freelance journalism life. I wanted some more steady income and I wanted to start to apply for full-time positions as someone who's been, you know, only a freelance journalist for, for six, seven years. I think I would have a bit more anxiety level, a higher anxiety level, because at that very early stage entry level kind of position, I'm hearing a lot more news outlets, especially daily news outlets, are turning towards AI for tasks that were, you know, undertaken by entry-level journalists or first-year journalists in, in, in newsrooms. And, you know, those kind of tasks are now being um, written by certain AI system, not on a, you know, 100% level by every newsroom, but certain newsrooms are. So one example being um, reporting on a, <clears throat> on a company's financial performance. You don't really need someone with deep background in finance to write about uh, the revenue growth and expenses and, um, you know, what happens with their movement of, of their stocks. But an AI system well-versed in finance and, and financial intelligence could do that really effectively and spit out something in 300-word range that would do the job of what we see in a lot of business sections of daily newspapers. Now, I think I'm not too worried because I like to write interview-driven articles where I have maybe three or four interviews, let's say for an article for BBC, um, you know, one important interview that I have to do in person for an article article for Toronto Star or Globe and Mail. And I don't think an AI system can really replace that level of person-to-person -person interaction, bringing color and detail from being somewhere into like the lead or uh, end section of an article and, you know, bring nuance of human behavior that comes with interviewing. So that's why I'm not too, too worried about my position. What it, but it does give me sense that, you know, if I do want to become a freelance, sorry, if I do want to become a full-time journalist, uh, that that might be uh, ratcheting up my, my worry levels, yeah. Is there any capacity for AI in your work right now? Do you use it for anything, David, or? Yeah, so I don't use ChatGPT and system like that, but I use a system called Rev. So Rev transcribes the interviews that I do using AI. Um, there's the option to use a human-based uh, trans transcriber for uh, probably around 
six times as much uh, money, but I like to use the AI transcription and it's been uh, a huge time saver for me. Transcribing is one of the least fun things for journalists to do. Yeah. You do these hour and a half interviews and then you have to listen to it again and write so fast that, you know, your, your wrist cramp or you have to go back over and over to statements that are, um, that, that you might've missed. And it can take quite a long time, upwards maybe of three, four hours for a 90 minute interview. And so with an AI system that can do that in a finger snap, cost me around, I don't know, $20 or so uh, yep. US to do a, a 90 minute interview. That just saves me a lot of time. It's one of those tasks that I'm really glad AI is able to do. And I'm thankful for uh, companies like Rev uh, and there are many others that do AI transcription to just ease ease my, my life a bit. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so so that's, that's probably the main tool I use. Is that why you, that's mainly what you use it for? Because uh, as you mentioned earlier, because you have that human touch, you still have to talk to somebody, you still have to go see somebody yes. and interview them. And you're right. I mean, uh, AI cannot really, um, you know, read human thoughts yet, but I, I hear somebody's working on something like that. Uh, I heard about that too. Yeah. So, so we don't know what the future hold, but at this point you, I see AI and that's what I'm, you know, in, from everybody I talk to, I see AI and human and hybrid world where you have AI is supporting you like a droid almost. Uh, yes. beside you, supporting you, coaching you, you know, gathering information. Nowadays, I'm assuming like in, in the newsroom, you know, a lot of, there, there'd be a lot of social media monitoring. There's a lot of data crunching from what's available on the internet. Instead of, as you said earlier, instead of having like a team of 10, 12 people doing this full time, now probably could do it with, you still need people, but you probably can do it now with four people, like five people instead of yeah, dedicating an entire department. And one example that I remember reading about was from the UK's Daily Mirror and Express. They published in early 2023, their first articles written using AI. Um, and it was for simple articles, such as like seven things to do in Newport. And you see those, you know, listicles and, and outlets like BuzzFeed as well. And I can see where AI can be applied for more lifestyle oriented, um, culture oriented kind of, articles that can spit out things like, you know, the most exciting winter trips to take in, in the Aspens or the, the, the best day trips you can do with your kids in Ontario that can scan so many different kinds of experiences and listings that could be on a database of all these events to do with your kids in Ontario. And, and then, you know, just flushes a few out that hopefully a human journalist will will scan for um, accuracy. And that might save a journalist a lot of time. And so I can see a lot of journalists working hand to hand with with database searches and tools like BARD and ChatGPT, because it's just going to be a factor with um, major newsroom. Whether small newsrooms use it, I'm not sure. I think a lot more um, high uh, headcount newsrooms are gonna be using it. LA Times used it for their um, uh, investigative articles the International Society of Journalists, sorry, International Consortium of Investigative Journalists used it for their uh, Pandora Papers mm -hmm. investigation, which, um, you know, as, as many of uh, your, your audience may know, uncovered offshore tax accounts used by um, some of the world's most prominent billionaires. And to have something like a, a spam filter that can scan databases full of documents that uh, contain so many figures and perhaps um, data points that are difficult to organize uh, by hand, that is where I think the value of AI will, 
will really be be seen. And and um, you know we were talking about it earlier. I was on a different call earlier, and uh, that is a very key point: is the data that's going into AI. It has to be sanitized data. It has to be a cleansed data, because if it isn't garbage in, garbage out, and what you end up with in, with with AI at that point, um, I'm not sure. There's a term being used is um, hallucination. So AI can produce, um, of course, you know, we are asking technology to output something, but it's learning from us. Now, uh, there was an article in uh, published in Popular Mechanics not too long ago about um, singularity and singularity, the projection now being reached in seven years or five to seven years. Now, we don't know if that's going to be true or not, but the idea is that if AI is going to take a look at a reams of data, at a, at a mountains of data and make decisions on that data, that data must be correct. It better be correct because the output is going to be questionable. Yeah, no, that's so, so on point. Yeah, you got it right, Robin, because you're only as good as, as the data that you're able to uh, feed into the machine. So I think at that point of data collection, there has to be, you know, some human involvement. It can't just solely be putting in, let's say, you know, tax files and, and offshore account information that hasn't been first analyzed. And maybe it's not scrutinized on to a minutia level that would require, you know, uh, hundreds of hours of time by these journalists or interns, but mm -hmm. would at least be sanitized enough that, you know, journalists and editors feel comfortable feeding into a system that can hopefully output something that would uh, make up the, you know, the grist for journalistic content. Um, I think that will be critical because what we've seen too is a lot of algorithms being biased, sometimes racially biased too with um, computer vision. Uh, there's been many reports of some facial recognition systems not being able to identify black faces because so many um, inputs from the creators of these systems were only feeding it into the system uh, white male faces because they themselves might be white male who are you know overwhelmingly the the folks creating these systems. So that is that is a major factor to algorithmic bias. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. So what I think all, everyone has to be diligent about is ensuring that from the point of inception and creation that their AI system is unbiased and has been sanitized from anything that can skew results that would skew, of course, the um, investigative article. Yeah, like one of the big topic is that has been talked about for the past five, six years now is the ethical um, uh, subject when it comes to AI. Like how are we deploying AI and how ethically are we deploying AI in terms of, you know, this, you know, a um, gender is, is one thing. Um, race is another one. Uh, the uh, ability to distinguish between, uh, you know, the fake news, I would call it, versus the truth. And how do we uh, distinguish that? Because, again, if we are reading fake news as a tr truth, then you end up with, again, uh, mistakes being made in the output process. So have you had any conversations around ethical deployment of AI? And what's sure. the read so out there? Yeah, so I wrote an article for BBC uh, News in February 2023 <clears throat> on how AI could swamp social media with misinformation. And I spoke to a lot of uh, fantastic uh, and, and, and intelligent folks 
who really wrote um, important papers that I think went under the radar by a lot of mainstream media on the importance of ensuring that the bad actors out there um, don't misuse AI systems to proliferate misinformation, disinformation, and propaganda. Because with AI systems now, it's even easier to feed a system with something like the Pope endorses Donald Trump, which was fake news uh, a few years ago, and have it look like a real article with real logos and uh, a legit sounding journalist name, but with the content being complete drivel. And I think with AI systems spitting out those kind of um, uh, false reports, I'm hopeful that there will be AI systems to scan those reports and better label that as misinformation, that the AI systems can work against each other or, well, I guess, yeah, in, in concert so that they can also combat what the bad actors are doing with those same algorithms and let's say chat GPT like uh, models, because, you know, with all that high volume of content that generative language models can produce, I'm hopeful that there'll be enough, um, you know, large language models that people do identify that as, as misinformation. And there are a lot of folks working right now to ensure that things like deep fake videos can be labeled as, as fake because now we're seeing so much use of it, especially with unfortunately deep fake porn against uh, women in, in, uh, in Hollywood and in the music industry that are fooling folks on platforms like X. But if there can be a watermark, and that's what folks are working right now is a watermark or QR-like code that can be um, imprinted on these images automatically by systems that identify these as deep fakes, then I think that can work towards us helping our audiences understand what's real and what's not. And that's that's going to be an uphill battle. Sometimes the bad actors are one step ahead of those who uh, try to bring safety to the internet. And we've seen with things like ransomware as well. So you know, I wish them luck. <laughs> so, so the question becomes, you know, you bring up a very good point. Uh, as a generation where we are right now and, you know, in the new next generation is coming right behind us, um, mm. we are at a stage where, you know, it's important for us to distinguish between what's fake and what's being generated via AI. Mm. You know, are we going through a phase uh, in terms of where we are right now as a humanity uh, where mm. we need that? We need to make sure that we identify that and we... Keep it in check. This is done by a human. This is not done by a human. And the next generation after us say, ah, I don't care. I mean, if things are better now and I don't care if it's fake or not fake. Everything becomes fake or something. I don't know. I don't think it's a phase, Robin. I think it's something that will consistently be top of mind for not just the journalism industry, but I think for media literacy in general. So what I'm hoping for is that the education system in not just Canada, not just U.S., but around the world have better protocols in place and curriculum in place that can teach, I would say, in the high school level to begin with, the difference between real content and fake content. Because media literacy is not just about understanding, you know, racial bias in an article or when um, there was between an opinion article and a and a hard news article. But I think in this day of of, of digital literacy and more and more people getting their news online on TikTok, on X, on Instagram, then opening up the New York Times or the Toronto Star, I think at the high school level, they have to be taught that this isn't a phase. Misinformation is going to be 
you know, threading throughout every kind of stream of content that you uh, take in and you can't maybe trust what you're seeing on the gram or on your X feed because uh, X moderators can only work so fast. So if there are more, I think, specialized courses in place that are part of the curriculum, that isn't just something that is an elective, but it is part of the either the English or, or media courses that are, are important for students to take at the high school level and not just the university level, because yep. I don't think everyone moves from high school to um, uh, extracurricular, sorry, to, to uh, college and university. Some go into trades and never again revisit media literacy as a course. Then I think that's going to be a key thing for, for teachers to teach. So it's being used in the education sector as well, though, David. Uh, oh, yeah, that's true. I have a lot of teacher friends who are dealing with that right now. Now, I, I have an interesting kind of perspective on that. I don't think it should be outlawed. I don't think ChatGPT should be completely banned from uh, the use for, for high school students. What I think it could be used for, similar to Wikipedia and Google, where it's a starting point for children and teens to learn about a certain topic. It doesn't write an essay for them, but if they want to put in a prompt such as, uh, tell me um, about the use of book banning in, in the U.S. South and uh, the consequences of book banning in uh, the United States, then I think if it spits out that kind of historical perspective uh, and maybe even fine-tune it to book banning in, in Tennessee and, and at, at a localized level, then I think that provides interesting fodder, hopefully for students to write compelling essays that are written by themselves. And more and more teachers have software now to identify if something has been AI-driven. Um, so I think Students who think they can just get by with a chat GPT written article, they uh, might be seeing a DNP minus <laughs> on those on those papers. Yeah. But I'm here also the teachers are using it to develop like tests to generate yeah. ideas around yeah, I've heard about that too. Um, I think that's totally fine for for I think you know idea generation as well. And also for coming up with ideas that could, you know, make the classroom a bit more lively and engaged. So I think it's even something as, as simple as a prompt as, you know, give me an idea to um, teach poetry to grade five students who have never been exposed to a poem before. And if there's something, a nugget in there that the AI system spits out that can then allow the teacher to leapfrog off of that to create their own, let's say, yep. classroom exercise on teaching poetry. I think that that's great. Um, I don't think it's going to totally replace teachers either. So teachers shouldn't worry about AI systems replacing them because, again, you need that human-to-human -human touch point. I think every time we democratize anything, uh, you know, media, financials, et cetera, um, I think you, there is an, the education component gets missed. Uh, so when I remember when the uh, government – you know, started working on um, instituting RRSP as a re retirement saving plans for Canadians. So basically put the, you know, I don't want to switch topics here, but put the decision-making process on your retirement in your own hands versus an institution. Uh, a lot of people were yeah. asking questions like, are we going to educate these guys? Now, the in the, same, in the same token, we're given, you know, there's a lot of possibilities out there, especially on the a journalism point of view, everybody now with a phone and a camera and can be, you know, a newsmaker um, and, and post things out. I mean, I'm doing this podcast literally, you know, using my camera and my, my computer. That's it. And so and talking to people about things. Now, am, am I a journalist? Absolutely not. And I'm not a journalist. I, I love talking about, you know, content and how content is created in the localization world and 
in, in any in any topic, really. I love having conversation with people. People love to listen to that. I don't proclaim to be a journalist at all. And But the point is that the education that is required for people to understand what's right and what's not right, what's real, what's not real, it's it's very important. And, and I think people are leapfrogging a little bit, David, in terms of the benefit of this technology. Like we're, we're assuming the benefit now, but we haven't realized the benefit yet. Um, you know, people like saying, oh, yeah. uh, you know, I'm going to improve my, pro-. I'm just using it as an example. I'm going to improve the productivity of my employees by 80% or 50%, whatever the number is. But meanwhile, we still haven't, people haven't learned it yet. In my last podcast, we talked about deploying AI in the workspace. And we talked about people, training and process and technology. All these needs to be in concert. And if you just throw AI, you know, uh, it, it, to the, to the, uh, to the crowd, well, people are going to grab it in a different ways and not systematic way of using it. Yeah, you, you have a really good point there. And I would say that's even – that was clear to us as a society with social media. I think social media was kind of thrust upon us in the early 2000s, Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram, and, and Snapchat. And we all kind of posted without – and especially youth posted without education on the implications of being anonymous – and posting content that could harm other people, whether that's videos of certain incidents taking place that exposes people and their identity and where they live. And I think there has to be a lot of education and training on how to use social media responsibly, how to use AI responsibly. And I think a key thing that we haven't mentioned yet is transparency. I think when newsrooms and other organizations are transparent about how they use AI in their organization, both to their employees and to their client list and audience, I think that brings a lot of assurances to folks that perhaps don't see that in other organizations that aren't transparent. You know, when CNET, a popular tech yeah, news site, started using AI to write their articles, there wasn't a lot of transparency at first, but they got caught and they had to backtrack quite a lot on their use of AI, so much so that they claim that they're not using it all anymore. Um, because a lot of journalists found that there were errors in their articles, found accuracy to be an issue, fairness to be an issue. And a lot of audiences were kind of stretching there being like, mm, there's something different about this CNET article <laughs> compared to what I remember reading in, in you know, the last yeah. month. So that transparency is going to be a factor. I don't think any organization wants to be caught with their pants down with uh, AI usage becoming a real bugaboo for them and, you know, turning audiences against them. So I think... I think it's fine when organizations, you know, leverage AI systems in a responsible way and responsible AI has become more than a hashtag, but a real um, important trend for folks to clamor onto. But as long as they are identifying when AI is being used within article uh, generation, idea generation, editorial processes, um, or even with onboarding employees and HR, then I think people will feel a bit more uh, um, at ease. So what do you think of the uh, future of employing uh, journalists uh, in, in the future? And do you think, should we start, go back a little bit and start looking at the academia side first? Should we encourage people to go into journalism? Like if you have a friend who's asking for advice, would yeah. you encourage, and he's saying, hey, I'm thinking about going to journalism. What do you think? And should we go back to the academia now and adapt it at the academia level, not after they postgraduate? Yeah, you great point, Robin. Because I think at that academic level, you have to start to, you know, merge data journalism with the boots on the ground journalistic techniques that we were taught at J school, uh, you know, twenty thirty years ago. Data journalism and database journalism is fast becoming 
an important skill set for journalists to harness because with AI systems being introduced into newsrooms, large and small, they have to know how to manage this kind of data that used to be some kind of data that we would see from Google or all the data coming from libraries and microfiches, if, if that word uh, rings some bells to some, some older folks. And now with you know AI um, systems being so commonplace in a lot of newsrooms, uh, I think that skill set of, of data journalism gathering techniques and using uh, LLMs in a, in a very respectful and responsible way has to begin first year journalism school, second year as well. And once those internships start to take place, um, those internships would hopefully give those young journalists a chance to experiment with AI systems. Because I think I remember reading a Google um, survey that found that 75% of U.S. news outlets are using AI systems in some way. And with three quarters of news outlets using them in some way, journalists have to be prepared to experiment, to you know, see what works for them and their own capabilities. And perhaps if you're a sports journalist, it might be different than if you're, you know, covering politics or if you're covering finance. And, and that's fine. Not every journalist is going to use AI in the same way, but I think it has to begin at the academic level. And I think the future of journalism is, is murky. I'd say that. It's hard for me to say hopeful. It's hard for me to spin it as completely positive right now because of the layoffs I'm seeing. You know, yesterday, actually, funny uh, side note, Vice.com yeah. announced that they're no longer going to publish content on Vice.com and lay off a lot of folks as they become a studio um, house content kind of outlet. And someone found out that memo from the CEO was it written by Oh, my AI. goodness. And they found that to be so disrespectful to the hundreds of journalists who are going to be losing their jobs that if this is just another example of AI driving journalists out of uh, a newsroom that I was part of because I was a freelance contributor to Vice for many years for their motherboard section and found them to do really important investigative work, no matter what someone may think of their Vice founders who um, you know have very uh, eccentric personalities. But that's just an example of, you know, how we can use AI poorly and disrespectfully. Um, but I hopefully, you know, people entering journalism now uh, play with it a bit and understand how it can improve their jobs and free them up to do the creative work that they need. To That's do. right. And um, the you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of um, a creative work, because there is a role for human. And, you know, uh, the role here is to shape the technologies that we have at hand. And um, it's nothing new. I mean, humans for the past 30, 40 years been adopting technology into their lives in a variety of ways, and they were adapting to it. It's not, it's not that scary. The, 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 the part that it's, you know, I think people putting the, uh, the, uh, the cart before the horse here is that, you know, as a company, as a business, or as an individual, I have a huge hope for AI, that AI is going to be that magic wand is going to be the solver of everything, which is not. And it's, you know, reality, we, we got to have a reality check. Yeah, exactly. AI isn't going to be the end all be all. And I think, you know, newsrooms realize that because they have to still invest in uh, human technologists and human, you know, database uh, surveyors and, of course, writers to take all that data and bring it to a concise, informative and engaging article because, Sure, ChatGPT is doing some wondrous things. So is Bard. So are the other you know competitors to ChatGPT with the you know written content. Some people are amazed at the kind of creative content that can come out of ChatGPT. 
but I think, you know, to really write compelling pieces that bring, you know, entertainment and information in a marriage that really is unique to a voice from a journalist, I think that's going to be really difficult to replicate into AI systems. We won't see a Hunter S. Thompson-like, you know, ChatGPT spitting out gonzo journalism because that gonzo journalist um, and the iterations uh, of that gonzo journalist today need to be, you know, bring that scenic color and detail into their pieces and their voice has to be unique as well because, you know, especially with column writing, there's a certain voice that comes from a columnist in the New York Times or New Yorker or The Atlantic or McLean's that is unique to them. And I think that will still be difficult for AI systems to replicate. So do you think AI now, you know, one of the, one of the things that I, I feel like in when it comes to journalism and writing content is you would like to address the content to a people who wants to consume the content. So what are the readers are looking for? What are they uh, hoping to see? What are they hoping to read about? And I think yeah. that discovery phase, AI could, I don't know. I mean, I, it could be helpful in terms of, AI doing the statistics, the scanning on the uh, on on the audience, and try to figure out the audience would most likely read your content and you know um, and give it a good feedback or yeah, that is definitely happening. That's happening in newsrooms around the world, and and this was happening before with something called A/B testing. You know, A-B they testing, would test yeah. headlines, and BuzzFeed and Vice were kind of known for this. They would test headlines on various audiences. This headline drove this amount of clicks, this headline for the same article drove this amount of clicks. And then they would go automatically through AI. This is the headline that was, you know, at the end of their experiment, the the most kind of uh, popular for the readers. So this has been going, going on for a long time, just not on the kind of widespread scale that we're seeing right now. And I think with so many outlets being sometimes online only or driving a lot of content, to their online portals. We're going to see a lot more editorial decisions made based on how people are engaging with articles, not just on what they click on, but how long they stay on that site. Because sure, we can read a headline and then click away on on Twitter or even on a front page of a news site. But are we scrolling? Aren't we scanning? Are we going to the bottom of the piece to read the entire piece? And with AI systems and you know legacy and, and systems being able to do this as well, they're able to understand, okay, this is what drives not just clicks, but full read-throughs, and that helps us. Time on site helps boost our advertising revenue as hopefully more people click on content and engage with perhaps online ads through you know, uh, video content. I think it's just the old uh, age uh, fight for eyeballs on content for as long as you can. Um, and everybody now, it's moved from you know your typical five, six media companies around the country in Canada that controls, you know, the, well, not controls, that mainly, you know, known as a uh, news broadcaster or, or as a, whatever you want to call them, a media companies that control the message yeah. out there. Now you've got decentralized way of looking at this. There's websites, there's individuals, there's a bunch of things that's going on. They're disseminating their own views. It could not, you know, it's not, maybe in a lot of cases, it's not news, but they just love to share their own views. And AI is influencing yeah, a lot and, of that. And that's exciting to be part of. Yeah, and, and that's exciting to be part of. You know, what I really love to see is more online um, outlets, you know, gathering content from journalists that have been laid off, that perhaps also have been marginalized from the journalism community before, whether they are from marginalized communities or identify as trans and non-binary who want to tell their stories that the mainstream media perhaps have kind of shut them out from 
from telling. So when there are more kind of niche outlets as well that, you know, specialize in, let's say, telling uh, trans or queer stories or specialize in telling stories from, you know, um, uh, indigenous communities uh, and perhaps from black communities as well in Canada or the U.S., that gives me hope that those kind of news outlets will thrive despite the rise of AI, perhaps, um, you know, driving content decisions that I think there'll still be that human element of like, oh, we need to report on this uh, corner of the community because it hasn't really been given the exposure that it, it So one of the topics that I noticed on your uh, profile, uh, David, that you enjoy talking about or writing about, which is very important to everybody, is decarbonization and climate change. Uh, we haven't talked okay. on, on this one yet. And um, so give me your thoughts on the topic because uh, it's an important topic to you. It's an important topic to everybody. And is there an AI role in there? Yeah, so I've been writing about decarbonization, climate change, and climate-friendly solutions for the past uh, 10, 12 years or so and for varying uh, um, uh, um, news outlets. And what I've kind of found is that AI and machine learning is definitely playing a role in climate solutions because what that's able to do is, again, ingest so much data about our pollution levels or about certain um, contaminants in the water or in the air and better spit out potential solutions that can, again, be prompted by humans and engineers and give a range of solutions. Now, whether it can predict that X or Y will exactly <clears throat> happen, that that is still you know in the process people are still figuring that out because it's still early days of of ai making a, a huge impact in climate friendly solutions but with um something like what i've written about recently for foresight dk out of europe which is turning food waste into renewable energy uh, ai systems can play a role with enbridge or bc hydro or or other systems that you know take in so much data and also can take in data from um, consumers. So not just on the mechanical engineering side or, or on the non-human side, but they can find out through AI systems, you know, how humans are engaging with uh, food waste and energy systems. If this is something that is of interest to consumers, despite the increased cost of, let's say, food waste turning into RNG. So, you know, you know doing some kind of data surveying, um, um, you know, uh, uh, project where they can ingest a lot of data from various consumers, upwards of maybe 50,000 or so on whether this landfill site um, turning into energy was um, of interest to them, is of interest to them down the road to uh, be part of a renewable mm -hmm. energy system. I think that could be helpful to folks as well. So there's a lot of uh, different pillars that AI can, can Absolutely. use. Absolutely. Um, sorry, we're on the, uh, toward the end of our conversation. I really enjoy our conversation, to be honest with you, David. And, yeah. and I'm very sorry we didn't do this like face-to-face. -face. Uh, we're in the same city. It's a shame we didn't. Oh, yeah, we, we, we could have met at the local Starbucks. And I do have, like, the equipment. We can do this over the phone with microphone on the, uh, on the, on the shirts. Next time. Next time I'd, I'd, I'd be up for it. <laughs> Maybe next time. I'd love to bring you back to the uh, conversation if you're up to it. Happy and, to. And, and, yeah. And, and thank yeah, you. Yeah, no on, problem. Man. I, really I uh, just want to leave you with, a, you know, I, I want to ask you one last question, if you don't mind. Any, oh, sure. any last comments or thoughts before we finish our conversation? Yeah, let me uh, think about something. Um, I think... What I'm hopeful about is that there is a lot more scrutiny now on AI systems and newsrooms, that they're not just implementing it willy-nilly. And I think I'm seeing papers from the Columbia Journalism Review, Neiman Lab, 
um, from the International Association of Journalists. And, and a lot of journalism organizations are taking AI seriously. They're writing deep uh, ebooks and white papers on it. So I, I'm hopeful that that newsrooms read these papers, understand the implications of AI machine learning, and are implementing it with that responsible AI um, groupthink mm -hmm. in mind. Uh, because I think now more than ever, journalists are tech savvy. They have used systems on social media and on and news gathering uh, tools more than they ever have before. More than, you know, when I was in J school and, and the library was our main source of data gathering. So because of that increased tech, tech literacy, I think editors, publishers, and writers understand the implications of poorly set up AI systems, of the algorithmic bias that we brought up earlier that can skew results towards one race or another as well. So that gives me hope that even with some of the negative implications of AI mm -hmm. in the newsroom, that they're going to be used responsibly and with a kind of a caution tape around it, with making sure, okay, we, we are going to implement it on this sector of our newsroom, but it's not going to totally replace journalists because we still need humans for that data gathering and um, writing. And, yeah, and the one-on-one -on -one so, conversation that you just had earlier. And one-on-one -on -one conversations, exactly. <clears throat> and, you know, something like even reporting on a, something as simple as a basketball game, sure, AI system can spit out who scored what points, but it won't bring the color and the energy right. of, of a, you know, a game within one point or a fight breaks out in, 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 a, in a basketball game that only a human can kind of um, break down. And I think that's, that's really going to be um, hopeful for a lot of folks who are worried about the demise. of Absolutely. Journalism. No, on this note, I thank you very much, uh, David, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And to our audience, thank you for listening. And uh, this is a very interesting conversation. Thank you, Robert. Uh, for, yeah, this is I, I uh, loved having David with us today. It was uh, a very interesting conversation to speak about it from a journalism perspective, from the content creation perspective, and how is that going to evolve? How is that going to be impacted in the future? David, I hope you come back to this channel. Uh, I'm sure the audience would love to hear from you. And I hope next time... I, I hope the next to. time we do it face to face. Sure. And, and lastly, I just want to let people know if they want to get a hold of me, right. they can reach me at davidsilverberg.ca. B-E-R-G is my... Uh, Absolutely. And David is uh, also on LinkedIn. Hit him up on LinkedIn. If you are interested in uh, learning more about what David does and how can perhaps his services be of use to you, uh, please reach out to David on, on LinkedIn. He's connected to me as well. For those who are connected to me, you can uh, look up uh, David as one of my connections on, on uh, LinkedIn. And for our audience, I really appreciate you listening in. If you're not subscribed to this channel, we really appreciate it. If you could do us a favor, you could do me a favor and subscribe to the channel. Uh, your support is very appreciated. And until next time, this is Robin Ayub and David Silverberg signing off. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye.